Well, good morning. It's a joy, as always, to be with you, to open God's Word as God's people, to hopefully, prayerfully hear His voice this morning as it's pouring in Brattleboro, Vermont. It's coming down good. Well, hey, let's pray, and we'll, we're just going to dive right in this morning. Father God, we thank you for this gift that you've given us, the Lord's Day to be together, to worship you, to have it be a holy day. It is a high and a holy day because you are with us and you have commanded us to be together corporately, to sing your praises, to hear your word. I pray that all these things that we seek to do this morning would be done as an offering of worship to you that would be pleasing in your sight, made so by the sanctified life of Jesus Christ in and among us. Pray that it would be presentable to you, that your spirit would have freedom in our midst to convict, to instruct, to exhort, to correct, and let it all be done by grace. And we give it all to you, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Exodus 15 this morning. And I know that we often do this to you. I know you're getting comfortable. So before you get too cozy, if you would and are able... Please stand with me. We're going to be looking at Exodus 15. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 21. That will be the subject matter of our text today. It says in verse 1 of Exodus 15, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries and you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And in verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. 
the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You may be seated. Throughout the history of the world, music has been used by men and women to tell their story, the story of their time, to create and shape culture. It's a powerful medium to encapsulate and convey the fundamental realities of our world and our experiences, while at the same time preserving them in the heart mind and soul for future generations. Since music speaks, even when not using words, music is not a neutral vehicle in the hands of men. Music is a powerful gift in a tool that can communicate truth or lie, build up or destroy, and because of the nature of words, according to Proverbs, it can produce life or death in its hearers. Still, music is God's creation, and as such, it possesses an important role and function in the narrative of redemption. When music and song are redeemed for God's glorious purposes, it serves to put God's story on display and to make much of God's grace. So when Christians sing God's story, they are singing their own story, properly ordered, underneath God's sovereign redemption, connecting the present to the past and future as a living memorial. And it reminds ourselves, reminds us that the story of redemption begins and ends with a song written by God himself. Why don't you remember that last part? Because that's important. So I've called this message, Singing the Story of God in Redemption. Exodus 15 is glorious on many levels, but one of the chief ways it is glorious is that it is the first song of the Bible. Now, shame on me, but I actually wasn't aware of that until I studied that this weekend and began to contemplate just how profound that actually is. Um, But it's the first song, the first complete work of not just words on paper, but words put to melody. Now, of course, we don't have historically the melody, but no doubt it had a melody. It was made to be sung to music. Uh, And the people of God, you could say rightly, this might be the first hymn of God's called out people in all of redemptive history. It's significant, very significant. Exodus 15 serves as a marker, as a living memorial to God's redemptive work throughout all of time to the present day. It serves as a marker for a distinct act of God in judgment upon his enemies. And it serves as a distinct uh, call to worship, if you will, as we do every Sunday, to the people of God to remember what just transpired in the crossing of the Red Sea. 
This was a moment in history that was to not be forgotten. It was not only to not be forgotten, it was to be remembered by song. It was to be passed down to the children and the children's children by not only oral tradition, but musical tradition. It was to be something that the people of God did not forget. Now Moses himself, as the writer of this awesome song, has two songs to his record. The, the other song is recorded near the end of, I believe it's Exodus, um, and it's a little bit different in nature. But this is the first song. We won't deal with that other song today, just passing reference. You can look it up. But this first song of Moses uh, really can be, I guess, outlined in four distinct ways. So I want to attempt to do that this morning. I want to give you my outline. This is, of course, this is the first song of redemption in Scripture, it's also what I believe, and I'll endeavor to make a modest case for, it's the first systematic theology of redemption in Scripture. It's also the first celebration of redemption in Scripture. And it's the first time God's elect corporate people sing corporately of redemption in Scripture. So some really important foundational things are happening in Exodus 15 here uh, as it commemorates the crossing of the Red Sea and God's judgment over Pharaoh. Of course, the Red Sea, as Pastor Dave brought out well last week, is symbolic of the waters of judgment to God's enemies, uh, i.e. Satan and the powers of darkness. And it's also symbolic of their baptism into Moses as they cross the Red Sea. They are entering into covenant, uh, and the covenant will commence itself at Mount Sinai, where they are headed shortly. It will take some time to get there. So all of this is in view. So this is a moment to not be forgotten. Uh, so again, it's the first song, it's the first systematic theology, and I say that in light of progressive revelation, meaning it's not a complete systematic theology, of course, uh, at this point in Scripture. Uh, we have the whole counsel of God, so our systematics are a little more complete. Uh, but this is nonetheless a real endeavor, spirit-inspired by Moses, to condense and synthesize the work of God in redemption thus far in history. And it's a beautiful one. And again, it's the first celebration, and it's the first time people sing corporately. So the song kind of explodes off the page in a, in a real sense, for it flows from the last verse of 14, uh, chapter 14, where we see the Egyptians washing up dead on the seashore. I just want to reference it uh, by way of introduction here in the previous chapter. It should be on the same page. It says, in verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is awesome because the people are simply responding in awe of God. And, you know, this is the, the fundamental nature of all worship, corporate or private is a response to the work of God. This is significant because when we consider the matter of praise or worship, as we often think of it, we are not contributing to God or giving to God something he doesn't have. We're responding to God in light of all that he is. We are contributors to the massive chorus of praise that is resounding in all of creation at all times, that the earth praises the Lord. We are simply joining in as God's chief creation glory, man and woman, 
to give him what is rightly due him. So to not do this is in a sense to rob God of what is rightly due him. So the people here are in light of what they both have seen, in light of what they now fear, which is no longer Pharaoh, but the Lord, and in light of their newfound faith in the Lord, which was pretty shallow and pretty weak just a few moments before, they erupt in a spirit-inspired song of worship. And that is the bedrock of all God-pleasing worship. That it is a response to the work of God in sincere faith, believing faith upon the Lord Jesus, that we would respond to God as worshipers, as Jesus said in John 4 to the woman at the well, those who are God, the Father seeks worshipers, Jesus said, who will worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. So it's not mere emotion. It's not mere sentimentality. It's a spirit-inspired, faith-filled response to the work of God. So this is where we find ourselves here. As you can kind of get the visual in your head as I'm trying to, uh, for you, these over half a million Israelites coming out of 400 years of slavery see their captors washing up onto the banks of the Red Sea dead. So no longer is their deliverance sort of like ethereal. It's no longer like, well, I hope we make it out of Egypt. We've gone this far, but they're coming. No, now their enemies are literally dead. God has legitimately and finally struck a death blow to all that they feared. All that's left for them to fear, rightly, is the Lord himself. And they do that for the first time, perhaps, in their entire life. So this is a celebration that I think the only comparable thing in our day would be like going to a sports stadium of 80,000 people and your team just scored the game-winning touchdown in overtime. Now, I'm a Patriots fan, and I'm going to go here for a moment because it's just right for me to go here as a Patriots fan, that when we beat the Atlanta Falcons in overtime in 2016, I lost my mind. I was ready to go to bed and thought the game was over in the third quarter, my wife went to bed. I said, check out. It's not worth watching. And the entire sport world lost their mind in the next 30 minutes as Tom Brady defeated the Falcons in overtime. And it was truly the greatest sporting experience I've ever had in my life as a Patriots fan. Now, if you're an Atlanta Falcons fan, it was the worst moment in your life. Um, tough. Get over it. Uh, but Tom Brady beat you right and fair. It was great. So I say all that because that was the moment where I was literally jumping up off the ground, hitting the ceiling with my fist. And, and I thought of that moment in a sense, and, you know, anecdotally it's, it's funny on some level, but really, truthfully, we don't get excited enough about the work of God. We get excited about things like that, and that's all fine and well, but they are simply a very shallow shadow of the kind of joy that the Israelites here are experiencing post the Red Sea crossing as they're washing their adversary wash up on the beaches, dead as a stone. This is a breathtaking view. And it's a celebration like nothing else, I would argue, in history up to this moment. This is not a few rabble people in the wilderness lighting some tiki torches and having a barbecue. This is over a half a million people in unison with one heart 
shouting the praises of God over their defeated enemy. So that's a modest attempt at trying to set the stage. But Moses, as the writer and leader of this powerful song, joined the people in unison, men, women, and children, and they were wholehearted participants. And I think the question before us this morning over this whole sermon is in our lives, do we sing the song of redemption like that? Or are we on the sidelines watching other people give God the glory that he is due? He's immediately reminded and rightfully convicted here in Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17, that reminds the people of God to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And this is really convicting. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I will say this in light of verse 1, when Moses with the people sang this song, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. As the people of God, we need to repent of our apathy and our indifference. We must confess that often cursing instead of blessing flows out of our hearts and mouths. We as God's chosen people must put on the Lord Jesus and make much of God's glory. And in not doing that, we are robbing God of glory when we adorn ourselves with the garment of bitterness and complaining instead of the garment of praise that is befitting of God's people. So with you this morning, I repent of this, that we need to learn and reclaim the precious privilege in our homes and in our hearts of making much of the glory of God. Really, as a church, we need to reclaim our voice. We need to reclaim our voice. Now, I want to commend our church because I'm here every Sunday, and many of you are here every Sunday. And as small of a gathering as we rightly are, we sing the praises of God. Elijah does a wonderful job leading us in worship, and I hear voices, and it's great. But that should mark our life. That should mark our conduct. And you don't have to be an overly emotive, emotional person to be marked like this. You don't have to have a particular proclivity or personality type to be a worshiper of God. You have to have right faith, a heart full and burning with the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do is join the chorus that's already being sung by millions of saints across the world, the saints in glory, all of God's creation, and say, I'm just going to become a wholehearted, willing participant in this act of worship that's ongoing, even in eternity. It hasn't stopped. I want to join in. I want to be a co-participator. I want to give God and adorn God what is rightfully his, and I want to stop wearing the garments of bitterness and complaining. I want to sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Paul, the apostle, says in 2 Corinthians 4.13, this interesting mention, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. He's quoting scripture. He says, we also believe and so we also speak. What is he saying? He's saying that what comes out of the mouth is what fills the heart. It's what Jesus said already. What comes out of the mouth is what fills the heart. So what's coming out of our mouths? 
Is it effusive praise and glory to God? Or is it something else? Because what we believe about God and what we really believe about God will come out of our mouths. And I confess, oftentimes, what I say I believe about God is not reflected in what comes out of my mouth. And it's a stark, convicting reality that we need to be a people who bring into alignment what we say we believe about God and what actually comes out of our mouth. And here, notice in verse 1, it says, I will sing to the Lord. They weren't under any kind of false compulsion. They weren't under kind of some emotional manipulation on the part of Moses. This was a free gift offering. It says, I will sing. It was a choice. It was a decision. Now, albeit motivated by quite a thing, the Red Sea crossing, but nonetheless, in our lives, no matter what we see in front of us, we have a decision to make as God's people. Will we sing to the Lord or will we complain and be like the Israelites? And only a couple moments later, it would seem, turn into those kind of people. So the conviction is that what is coming out of our mouth? What is the resounding theme of this song? Well, as we already noted, the Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea, and we rejoice in the reality that God has dealt a death blow to the enemy. As I already mentioned, the Red Sea is symbolic of the judgment of God, the wrath of God poured out upon his foes, those who hate him, those not in covenant with him. And we see that Israel is reminded to not put their faith in the horse and its rider because this is something that God has set his judgment upon. I want you to notice that in verse 1 because the horse and his rider, of course the chariot, this war machine, is really a symbol in out, throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, of man's strength, man's ability to overcome, man's ability to win his own battles, fight his own fights. And in ancient warfare, of course, the chariot was really the cutting edge of warfare. It was the thing that if you had, you had an upper hand. And God is saying, look what I did with man's best attempt at defending himself. I drowned it in the Red Sea. The chariot and the horse have no provision for God's chosen people. They don't need the chariot and the horse. They need to bring glory to God. They need to fight with their words. They need to fight with their mouths. And in some cases, they need to fight by being silent, being still, and knowing that I am God, Psalm 46.10. So the people of God are faced with two things, to praise the Lord and to not put confidence in the chariot. This is going to come up in their history often as they deal in uh, the divided kingdom as the kingdom gets split after Solomon and the kingdoms in an effort to sort of stand on their own and push off the inevitable discipline of the Lord, keep trying to make alliances with other nations and barter for chariots and barter for horses. Even Solomon himself broke the law of Moses in multiplying horses. As a king of Israel, he was not to do that. He was not to multiply wives. He was not to multiply horses, and he did all of the above. And ultimately, it did not help him withstand in the day of discipline. So we see in, right in verse 1 this, this call to worship, this command to sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. So it's the first song in Scripture. Secondly, and you have to bear with me for this second point, we are going to seek to cover verses 2 through 18 in sort of a rapid-fire succession. 
with some exposition and then kind of land at the end of the chapter and kind of drop some applications. So be some applications sprinkled throughout this next section. But I want you to see, hopefully, that this really, I believe at least, is a first systematic theology of its kind in Scripture. So in verse 2 through 18, we have highlighted for us the case I will make, six aspects of God's character as revealed in this song that display the redemptive nature and actions of the Lord in history, but also transcending this moment unto eternity. So it's a beautiful thing. So again, as we look at verses 2 through 18, we already read it, but I want to just break it down in little tidbit sections. In verse 2, we see that the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The first things that break through to us right from the text is that the Lord is a personal God. This is hugely significant for not only our own lives, but in the ancient world, that the Lord God Almighty is a personal God who has made himself known to his creation by his own sovereign self-revelation. We see that right in verse 2. And all the people are doing is responding in identification with this truth, this foundational truth about who God is. They are joyfully declaring that the Lord is our strength, our song, our salvation, and our God. Remember, the Israelites just came out of the Red Sea, which for them was symbolic of baptism. I want you to follow me here. And out of the waters of the Red Sea, they rise in glorious identification with Christ. Okay, notice that. Glorious identification. That's what baptism symbolically represents. Our identification in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as Romans chapter 6 says, we were once dead in sins, but now we were made alive with God. We have been brought into identification with Christ. So they are declaring this identification, which for them is new. God had already declared it over them, but they had not declared it to God. This is the first time in their corporate history they say, Lord, you are our God. And I hope all of us here this morning can say with joy in our hearts that we have no other God, that this is our God. This is our strength. He is our song. He has become our salvation. And this is all possible because the Lord has condescended in glorious self-revelation to us. So they identify themselves with Christ. They declare it with vigor and faith that he has become their salvation. And in the same way, we have come to know personally that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than the name of Jesus. We have come to know and believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, risen from the dead, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And I want to point this out in 1 John, in the New Testament, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John writing to the Gnostic day in which he lived, which was trying to deny the bodily reality of Christ, that he was just some spirit being, never a man, says, okay, well, contend with this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He says in verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. And then again in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 4 through 18, these famous words, the Word became flesh, the Logos, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, meaning Christ. So we see here this theology of the Lord revealing himself sovereignly through his own self-revelation and the people in the waters of baptism identifying themselves with the Lord for the first time in their national history, if you will, saying, Lord, this is my God. And we as the people of God have the same banner over our life if we belong to him. We say, Lord, you are my strength. You are my song. You have become my salvation. This is my God. I think of Thomas as he was the great doubting apostle, says, I will not believe unless I see his holes in his hand and in his side. And of course, Jesus appears and he says, peace be unto you. He says, Thomas, put your hands here. Do not be doubting, but believing. And he falls down on his knees and says, O Lord, my God. Both declaring his deity and declaring his identity and declaring his identification with his great Savior who has now risen from the dead, removing all doubt. So we see this glorious self-identification in God's self-revelation. We see, secondly, in the latter part of verse 2, that the Lord is a covenant-keeping God. And we say this a lot here, and rightfully so. The Lord is a covenant-keeping God. What do I mean by that? Well, He is the God of our fathers. And we stand in the stream of God's eternal covenant of grace that He initiated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As is said here, right in the text, my father's God. And I will exalt him. Of course, their father's God is what God said to Moses. Moses was to tell the people in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. God also said to Moses at the burning bush, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And they say, I will exalt him. So they are remembering the God of their fathers as the Lord has revealed to them through Moses to remember the Lord by this manner through all generations that you don't stand on your own. Your faith is personal, but it's not individualistic. Big distinction. Your faith is personal, but it's not individualistic. It doesn't flow out of your own seeking after God. And there is a heritage of faith that all of us in this room, whether our fathers literally earthly fathers believed or not, we are standing on the faith of our fathers, the men and women of old, and ultimately standing in covenant with God, our father, that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and fulfilled in Christ. And we are glad recipients of this great covenant. So the Lord is a covenant-keeping God. We see that he keeps covenant. He has redeemed a people sovereignly for his own pleasure, and in fulfillment of his word to the patriarchs. And now we stand enjoying the blessings of the new covenant 
in Christ, as Ephesians 1 says, God has lavished upon us in all wisdom and riches. Uh, we are children of Abraham by faith, and as such, children of God. So we see this covenant-keeping God, and thirdly, we see that the Lord is a man of war. I like this a lot. I think it's a neglected theology about the Lord uh, in many ways, and we're not going to do it justice here, but I do want to reference a few things here that will tie this whole thing together. When they see for the first time that the Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Psalm 24, verses 8 through 10, says this, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Again, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. I love this because the Lord is a man of war. And I think sometimes we get this wrong where we think the Lord is, uh, even Jesus himself said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to divide households because of the claims that I bring in demand. So our God is a man of war. But he's a man of war, not in the sense of waging war in vain. He wins every war he, he fights. And he has won the war that he has fought because he has overcome the devil. He has risen from the dead. So here, when they say the Lord is a man of war, this is maybe no more clear or confirmed in Revelation chapter 19 in verses 11 through 21. Bear with me as I read this. I think it's really awesome. It says, Then I saw heaven open. This is John seeing this. Behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is the Lord Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. Notice this, the flesh of horses and their riders. And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. If that is not a war scene, I don't know what is. Furthermore, this is a war of 
to end all wars, to use that analogy. This is a war to end the war on the devil, to confine him permanently to the lake of fire. And it's analogous with this crossing of the Red Sea. For as the Lord drowned Pharaoh into the Red Sea, so he will drown Satan into the depths of hell. And there will be a great supper on the flesh of all of these mighty men, captains, kings, horses, and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. The Lord will reign supreme. And I love that his army follows him into battle. We are that army, church. We follow the Lord into battle. So the Lord is a man of war, and I clearly is none other than the Lord Jesus. He will overthrow our enemies. So we see this declaratory statement that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It's his memorial name that he'd be remembered all the way through eternity as the Lord, a man of war. And fourthly, in verse 4 through 11, 4 through 12, we've read, it says, various chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. See, the flood covered them, went down in the depths like a stone. And just descriptive, as we already read, of the way in which the Lord overthrows. So sort of doubling down on this theology of the Lord being a man of war. He says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. It's interesting. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And, of course, the enemy thinks to themselves, as they did here in Revelation, that I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. And, of course, they are tragically mistaken. But then we see also, fourthly, in verse 11 through 12, that the Lord is entirely other. There is none like him. The Lord is entirely other. He says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? He says, You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Isaiah 45 is replete with references to the awesome otherness of God. And I would commend that chapter to you in your spare time to read Isaiah 45 or even right through 50. A very uh, helpful in light of even what we just read in Revelation, but I'll just quote a couple verses for you. In Isaiah 45 verse 5, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. He says in verse 22 of the same chapter, in verse 23, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. You could also say a sword that shall not return. And to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. It's where Paul gets his theology in Philippians chapter 2 when he says at the end of the chapter, says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He just wasn't making that up. He was fulfilling and applying Isaiah 45. And I think also in Isaiah 25, there's another reference to it. The Lord will cause all 
to bend the knee to him in the day of his power. But as Psalm 2 says, kiss the son now so that he's not wrathful in that day. I paraphrase. But we see the Lord is entirely other. There is none like him. And of course, these Israelites coming out of pagan idolatry, coming out of Egypt, where as we said many times in the narrative of the plagues, had more gods than they had grains of sand, it seemed. And here they say in glorious identification, who is like you? There is none like you. All the gods of Egypt did nothing. Here are the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And this just clarion voice goes out into the world saying, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And I think we just need to meditate on the reality that there is none like our God. Not only that there is no other God, but there is none like our God. He says in Isaiah 55, your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways are not my ways. And of course, we, we, we wrestle as finite creatures with the mysteries of sovereignty and the mysteries of God's otherness. For we always want to make God like ourselves. Our natural bent is to conform God, to squeeze God into our mold, to make him fit and look like us, to fashion him after our image. But God says, no, I made you after my image. And you will be conformed into my image, all those who I call to myself. But all those who are outside the covenant want to Conform God to their image. Make a God after themselves. Love themselves. Worship themselves. Turn everything into themselves. And God says that will be judged with wrath. That will be judged with fire. This is not the way of the redeemed people of God who say, Lord, we want to be like you. We want to be conformed into your image. So the Lord is entirely other. Then also, fifth, the Lord leads his people by steadfast love and grace. Notice with me in verses 13 through 17. This is of great comfort to us as God's chosen people today. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. and You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You should underline that. You should put that on your fridge. You should make much of that verse for it's a glorious promise to you. It's a glorious promise to me, not just to the Israelites, but to us here, that the Lord has and is presently unto glory, leading you, each of you, in steadfast love. His chesed love is, I think, the Hebrew word. The people whom you have redeemed, this, this unfailing love, this loving kindness, this demonstration of love. It's this idea that connotates an active, ongoing, intentional, demonstrative love that God is applying to you by covenant mercy. And he is leading you in it. So you look in your life, and many of us can find situations where we look at our lives and we say, man, it doesn't seem like steadfast love is, is leading me. Are you really guiding me by your strength to your holy abode? And the scriptures would say, resoundly, yes, he is. And I would say to you, in obedience to the scriptures, yes, he is. He is guiding you steadfastly, and he is guiding you in strength. And how glorious it is to know that our God is guiding us with strength, not weakness. We have enough weakness in ourselves to trip over a million times over. 
But God says, in strength, I will guide you. And I don't just guide you aimlessly. I guide you to my holy abode. Metaphorically, to us, well, literally, it's Mount Zion. Mount Zion. So to the nation of Israel, that would mean a literal Mount Zion, Jerusalem. To us, it means the kingdom of God, ultimately to be set up on earth. Our Mount Zion is not just a place. It's an entire reign of God's kingdom in heaven and on earth. As Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are seeking uh, a city with foundations as Abraham did. We are seeking a place that God is building. As Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you that when I come, I will bring you to myself that you may be with me as I am. What is this place? It's his holy abode. It's Mount Zion. It's the heavenly Jerusalem, as Revelation points out. It's the church gathered together, all under Christ's authority, when he will shatter finally and fully all those who oppose him. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And the scriptures make plain that we will judge the world with him at that time. We will be his army. We will be his governors in the earth. There's much more theology around that, but we don't have time today but to mention it. So he is guiding us by his strength, and he says, The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. And of course, as he goes through the list, we read, all these different things came true to man. He says in the account of Joshua, and also when the spies went into Rahab, Rahab says, look, as soon as we heard what God did to Pharaoh in the Red Sea, he says, all of Jericho shook. He says, we lost all courage. And that kept happening to the people of Israel as they remained faithful to God. Everywhere they went, the nations that they encountered were already stricken with fear. And of course, that fear had no merit in the nation of Israel, for they were a small people. They didn't have chariots. All these nations had chariots and weapons of war and and yet God had put fear into their heart. They were already dismayed, and they were trembling. And I think it's amazing because in, in our lives, often we, we, we fear the enemy. We fear these, these foe powers that come against us with hostility. But if you think about it, man, a dying man fights to live. And so do the enemies of Christ. They're already condemned. They're already damned, if you will use that word, and yet they fight to live. So they come across as fierce, but yet to the people of God in faith, they are already dead. They are already judged. They are already powerless, and this is what Christ has done in subjecting all things under his feet, is he has broken the power of sin and death. He has broken the power, the strangulating stronghold of the enemy, and, and this account bears witness not only to the historical record of the Israelites taking the land of Canaan, as we read in the reading of the law, but furthermore, as the people of God inherit all of the promises in Christ that we have, and we move in faith and take ground for Christ, the enemies, though we see them and though they look hostile, are actually quite afraid, and they are quite ready to be swept away. 17, verse 17 is awesome. He says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So the Lord leads us by steadfast love. He will surely 
bring us in and plant us in the house of God. He is doing it now, and he will complete it under the day of eternity. Lastly, and we'll bring this message to a close, the Lord reigns forever and ever. Verse 18 makes that resoundingly clear. It's the final aspect of this modest, systematic theology that it's the most wonderful news for the people of God, namely that our God reigns forever and ever. I mean, what better news could there be apart from the gospel itself, that our God, and through the gospel, reigns forever and ever? This is what we need to hear as the people of God, that we are not to be dismayed, that as we look into the earth and we see the, the seeming wasteland where God is not reigning, it would seem, in the hearts of men, we know that he reigns in the heavens and he reigns through his church. He reigns through your heart as you yield to him in glad submission. And I love this because in the account of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, one of the last things that Stephen sees before he's stoned to death violently, after he chronicles literally, and you should read Acts 7, it's a chronicle of all of this, this whole narrative of their history, and then he points the finger at the Sadducees and Pharisees and says, you killed the man who came to fulfill all these things and has fulfilled all these things. And it says they gnashed at him with their teeth, tore their clothes, drove him out of their sight, and stoned him to death. Stephen was the first martyr of the church, but it says that he, Stephen, in verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is what people of faith, full of the Spirit, see. They see the Lord Jesus reigning forever and ever. I hope you see that this morning. I hope you don't just know it, but believe it. And I hope you sing in light of it, because it is the glorious proclamation of the church. It is our blood-bought privilege to declare with all of our heart that the Lord Jesus reigns forever and ever. Jesus said it best, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations. So what does all this bring us to as we close? The last two things. Simple application for us this morning. What to do with all of this. We need to celebrate our God in his victory. And secondly, we need to rejoice and reclaim the gift of corporate singing as this is a visible and joy-producing testimony to the reality of our redemption. We need to recover the joy of our celebration in God, the joy of our uh, salvation in God, and we need to stoke the fires of faith by praise. We need to do this in our homes, firstly. And we need, from our homes, bring it into the church and say, we will be a people of praise. Not because people of praise put their head in the sand. Sometimes I've had this view of people that just, all they do is worship. They don't read the Bible. They don't do anything else. That's not what I'm espousing here today. Be thoroughly a worshiper in truth and spirit. Be a thorough worshiper of the Word of God and singing to God. Have both. Don't be one or the other, but nonetheless, we need to be a people who reclaim this. And I want to close it in this way, because in 19 through 21, notice with me, as this stanza gets repeated, uh, which is basically that the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea, it's the refrain of the song, 
He says, for when, in verse 19, the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Notice this. Then Miriam, Moses' sister, the prophetess, the sister of, excuse me, sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. I'm thinking of somebody else. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. This is significant because Miriam leads the women in praise and celebration, but she doesn't lead the men. Moses leads the men, leads the whole assembly. Miriam leads the women, but she does so in response to the men. Because women flourish in praise and worship when the men lead it. Women will follow when the men lead. And maybe, man, your wife is a worshiper of God at home, and she's got the music playing, and she's singing with the kids, and you're like, man, that's just a little too touchy-feely for me. Just not my thing. We need to repent. We need to reclaim our voice in the church and in the home. When we do, the women of the church will follow, and some of them already do. Many of you already do. But men need to rise and lead the household of their families in their church, in the praises of God, we need to celebrate from faith in certain covenantal victory. And I want to point this out. This is significant, and we're ending here. Revelation 15 says this. These are the bookends of the Bible's hymnal. I want you to see this. In Revelation 15, verse 1, It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and all those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. What do they sing? They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. These are the bookends of the Bible's hymnal, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And we have the privilege of singing both of them because of the grace of God. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you and in a simple gathering as this, we are your covenant people and we have the privilege of espousing the praises of God with our lips. Lord, I repent of often my lips not being wholly consecrated to you, of not reclaiming my masculine voice for the glory of God. Let it not be so. Let us as men and women follow suit to Scripture. Say, Lord, we will be a people who don't just claim you as God, but make much of you and espouse it and proclaim it in praise in our homes and in the church, that our voice would be wholly yours and that we would with one voice glorify our God and Father in heaven. So we give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.